Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. What is the intersection between technology, art and science? Curiosity and wonder. Because it drives us to explore, because we're surrounded by things we can't see. My guest today, Louis Schwartzberg, uses film to take people on a journey through portals of time and space to make the invisible visible, because that expands our horizons and opens our minds. It touches our heart. Louis, I pulled that introduction off one of your TED Talks that's been seen more than two million times, because frankly, if I'd gone through an introduction that mentioned your innumerous accolades and awards, we'd be here all day. Um, so talk to me about that, about that TED Talk hmm. and the, the images that you use when you're talking to people. Well, I think for me, wonder and awe is basically the essence of life. And whether you approach it from a scientific point of view or an artistic point of view, it's the same thing. It's observing phenomena, it's being in the moment, it's experiencing the now. And, and the scientist might explain it under the more rigid rules of the scientific method, that things have to be repeated. And the artist has a little more creative latitude in terms of creating um, an entertaining story. Mm -hmm. But they both intersect with this idea of being inspired by wonder and awe and curiosity. And they're trying to understand what makes the world go round. For people who haven't seen your talk, um, and we're going to be able to give you a link so that you can see it after, after this, you are a, a world leader. You are the king mm. of time-lapse photography. 
So the images that I've seen, for example, of a hummingbird with four sets of wings, you capture that so that we can see every bit of it. The one that sticks out for me is a mushroom growing on the floor of a forest. And, and so, so how do you take something like that? How do you capture that? Well, well, technically, you know, what we're doing is time lapse and slow motion, which means we're either speeding up or compressing time. And it's really simple because the mechanics of it is that when you watch a movie, it's 24 frames per second. If I'm shooting a flower opening, I'm shooting one frame every 20 minutes. If I'm filming a hummingbird, I'm filming at 1,000 frames per second. So when it's played back at 24, phenomena is either slowed down or sped up. But that's the mechanical part. That's the technical part. That's not the part that really intrigues me. I mean, I use my camera as a portal, as you said earlier, to go through time and scale. And the reason why I do that is because it broadens your horizon. When you have these narrow blinders on, as us human beings do, where we live for, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 years, um, it's so different than, let's say, a redwood tree that can live for a thousand years, or a fruit fly that might only live for a day or two. If you can put yourself into that point of view of these other creatures that share the planet with us, it, it, it broadens your horizon, and maybe more importantly, it connects with something deep inside of your soul, because all of these life forms share something in common. I mean, we're all connected. The metabolic rates may be different, but the rhythms and patterns, the physiology, the biology are all similar. And we need to understand that we're just a small segment of life on Earth. And if we do that, then maybe it opens up our consciousness or elevates the consciousness to protect the planet for everybody. Everybody starts off somewhere as a child wanting to be a teacher, an astronaut. Mm -hmm. When did this start for you and how did it start? It's really interesting because a lot of people assume I grew up in nature and had parents who taught me everything about the outdoors when the opposite is true. My parents were both Holocaust survivors and they knew each other for only a couple of weeks before they got married because out of ashes comes rebirth. They came to America with my sister who was born in Germany and they landed in Brooklyn. And I grew up in Brooklyn until I was like seven years old and I never experienced nature other than maybe racing popsicle sticks down a gutter. <laughs> so. I did learn a lot, though, about gratitude, because for my parents, having food on the table, a roof over their heads, a steady job, the miracle of having children is what they were always grateful for and prayed for every day. And gratitude is the thing in nature that makes you present and makes you aware of the little things in life that make the world go round, to be observant of what a bee is doing on a flower. It's, it's all the little things that you can become grateful for. So I developed, I think, this feeling of, of gratitude yeah. for the little things because it's the little things that is the foundation of life on our planet, like fungi that make soil, plants that live in soil that can take solar energy and create food and fuel and medicine for us to live on. Um, without that, there would be no... Um, Animals, and lions, tigers, and bears, the top of the food chain wouldn't even exist if we didn't have a foundation of life beneath it. 
Do you think subconsciously that you sought a career that would allow you to express and explore that gratitude? Or did you initially, when you left school, did you pick up a camera? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did that come about? So when I went to UCLA, given this kind of um, world that I grew up in, my parents being Holocaust survivors, I was a history poli-sci major. And had I stayed on that path, I would have maybe become a lawyer fighting for social justice because children of the Holocaust either become overachievers or victims. And um, But when I went to UCLA, and here I am sitting in class studying the French Revolution, there was a revolution happening right outside my door, the protests against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So the only way I could fight back the, against the police brutality was to pick up a camera and I started to document the events. And I also found out that it was easier for me to do a photo essay than it was to do a term paper. So that's when I found my voice. I fell in love with photography, which opened me up to filmmaking, and then that introduced me to my greatest teacher. She taught me everything about lighting and composition and movement and texture, and that teacher was Mother Nature. She also taught me how to live a creative life and how to be sustainable, how you don't waste a single molecule and how greed is not you know, a part of the business plan and um, that everything in life needs to flourish for an ecosystem to survive. When I, when I was looking into your background and I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was looking into your background and I saw that you'd worked with um, Ridley Scott, um, I want to say Scorsese, Spielberg, I mean, all of the, the big directors. I thought you were going to tell me that you'd gone on this path of filmmaking and then you had this moment, you should never assume. So, so that then ran concurrently in your life, that happened, but all the time you've got Mother Nature and your exploration happening? Tell me about that. No, no, it, it happened actually backwards from that because what happened is when I graduated from UCLA, I wanted to shoot high-quality film, but I had no money. So one of the reasons why I got into time-lapse is because you shoot a very small amount of film. You shoot one frame every 20 minutes. It would take me a couple of months to shoot a roll of film, which was four minutes long and cost $400. But it was high-resolution 35-millimeter movie film, which nobody back then was doing as a single person. Anytime you're shooting movie film, 35-millimeter movie film, it had to be a feature film or it had to be a commercial, lots of people on the set, etc. So eventually what happened is that people found out that I had this incredible archive. I actually came to LA and I showed it to the studios and ad agencies and TV networks and none of them got it. They said, oh my God, this is beautiful, but what do you do with it? You know, where's the conflict? The ad agencies picked up on it because they realized it was eye candy. And so I started to license it for commercials which really had never been done before because the only like stock footage available would be like newsreel footage from the past or scratchy film from an outtake of a movie. There was no pristine, gorgeous, you know, nature, cityscape, aerial, people at work and play. Nobody had that. So guys like Ridley Scott and Spielberg and, you know, Francis Ford Coppola if they needed a great shot and they had all the money in the world to do whatever they wanted to do, they would license a shot from me because it was the best. Because what I shoot is capturing magic moments and you can't program a magic moment. 
You can't make a rainbow happen. You can't make a gorgeous sunset happen. You can't fly over LA and hope it's going to be a clear day and get a gorgeous aerial. So that indirectly spawned not only my company, which was a licensing company for stock footage, it spawned the it pioneered the stock footage licensing business, removing images. And eventually that grew to over a hundred employees and 12 foreign offices. And then Getty Images bought my company in 1996. Wow. I, <clears throat> I love that notion of you came and you offered it to the studios and they didn't get it. Right. So, you know, we're all the same in, in so many ways, right? So, so many people try something one way, and when it doesn't work, they think, oh, well, that must have been a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Can you remember what your thinking was that then took it to the ad agencies, why you did that? Well, because, first of all, I never take no for an answer. And part of that might be because of my parents and the Holocaust, you know, survival. It's like, you know, it's hard to be rejected, but like, my God, what did they go through? Okay. You know, big deal, I got rejected. You know, so and also I believe strongly in in nature's wisdom and intelligence to share its beauty through gorgeous imagery of, of sight and sound. And if it, if, they, if nature gave me a gift of capturing a magic moment, I now shoulder the responsibility of sharing it. It's not just for me. That's why, like, I don't sit on the beach alone and just enjoy a beautiful sunset. I have to carry that heavy camera and try to capture it so that other people can share it and feel it. It's a responsibility. So what's a day like in your life? Do you, what, what do you, what, tell, I mean, there are photographers listening. What, what mm. equipment do you walk around with? Well, what makes you decide that you're going to capture that now? <clears throat> Well, first of all, one of the interesting things is I've had a camera rolling nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 40 years. Where is it? It's in- Is that my good sign? <laughs> <laughs> no. I have a small either studio or now it's a big bedroom where I'm shooting time-lapse flowers. I've squeezed 40 years into 16 hours of film. So that's happening every day. So my day starts where I kind of check, the, you know, the, the, the flower, is it still in frame? Is it in focus? Did it die? Do I need to reset another shot? And, um, you know, and, and my, my normal day is a combination, unfortunately, of a little bit of business as well as doing art to find distribution platforms for your work. It takes effort. And um, both when I go out with, when I film, I try to be as open as film itself. I try to have no preconceived ideas, no judgment, always in a state of readiness for light to strike. Sitting in the dark, always ready. To me, that's always been my model. The Keynesian economic theory, back in the day, um, I have a widget to sell and I find a person who needs a widget and I sell them the widget at a price that both they can afford and is going to offer me an ROI. Right. Okay. And now, welcome to the 21st century, where so much is now being done for free. Everybody has a platform, everybody has a camera, YouTube, Twitter, 
Periscope, Facebook, Facebook Live, Instagram. How, how would that have been for you if that was the model that, if you were starting now? Hmm. That's an interesting, it's a very interesting uh, question. I think that the democratization of having accessibility to cameras and distribution is wonderful, but at the same time, I think it has diminished the level of quality. I think quality will never go out of style. And even though you can get lots of photos or images online for free, and some of my videos I do make available for free, like the TED Talks, etc., um, I do think that people will always pay for quality. And as a matter of fact, we're, we're so overloaded and inundated with digital content that it's a gift if somebody can curate the best of the best so you don't have to waste your time going through it. I mean, you go on YouTube, to me, YouTube is like going to a swap market. Yep. You know, you're going to have to look around a whole bunch. You might find a gem or two, you might not, but you certainly would waste a lot of time. And time is the most precious commodity that you have. I, I think the word curate there is just so important because we're bombarded with all of this information. Right. Um, I loved. I love to hear you say that. I think about. I think about people starting now, and and building to get that quality when they're offering so much for free to get discovered. I mean, it's more. It's me coming from a mental, um, seeing that from an intellectual perspective of mm -hmm. how they they continue that struggle, and and also for the people who who are doing the picking, who are doing the curating how they wade through the vastness of what's on offer, even if, okay, go backwards, Ella. So you've got, um, um, I'm an actor, so I'm always being told, um, create your own content, Ella, create your own content. And there's so much content out there. There's a lot of it that isn't particularly good. Okay. And if I don't have the right people around me creating the content, my content isn't gonna be particularly good either. But then, we see somebody who has been elevated to a YouTube status because they've painted fake abs on their stomach and, and captured it on their iMac camera and, and it's gone out to the world, it's cost them nothing and suddenly they're making a gazillion dollars. It's the human condition to go through a period in our life where we compare ourselves to others rather than valuing our uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And that worries me because for people who have not got over the comparison yet, they're going to be spending so much time hunting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Hunting to be seen, to be heard. That's not the goal. I mean, I think no matter what, you have to develop your own voice. And if you're looking to, if you're comparing yourself to others, not only in competition, but in terms of what's being said, then you're just copying somebody and you don't have a unique message. We all have something unique to share with the world and we need to dig down deep and nurture that and develop that and not think about the audience it's gonna to go to um, because then you're just creating a commodity, you're homogenizing a statement when what, what, what I think people want is something that's unique and different. That's, <clears throat> it's absolutely, I, I totally agree with you. I, I see it in Hollywood particularly. I mean, yeah. you're sitting in your office in, in LA 
and and this is the land. Right. When you look at a business model like House of Cards, for mm -hmm. example, the first thing that was ever released on Netflix, bang, all the episodes there, the first binging that we really had, unless you were a collector of Star Trek or Doctor Who and you had all the DVDs or you had it on a hard drive and just watched it one after the other. And that was a game changer as far as making art available on demand, mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. um, me being able to, when I was introduced to you, and then the first thing, of course, I do as a journalist is I go and I find as much as I can about you. And nowadays, that's by going to the internet, mm -hmm. where I was exposed to a lot of your material, and thank goodness. Yeah. But there is this... The thing about your material that's so, that's so different is that... I don't even know how to express this. I'll give it a go. Give it a go. <clears throat> You're not, this is not pretty pictures. It is pretty pictures. But this is exactly what you say in your TED talk. This is about, this may be the one thing that we're missing at the moment, a connectedness to everything, to each other. Although, as you say, with different metabolic rates, um, an understanding of the earth that gets us to ask questions, right? Yeah. That must and, make you very proud. Well, it does because when, when you alter you know, time and scale and I say it changes your worldview, what you're really doing is you're creating a transformational experience. And that's what I think what we all yearn for. Now, some people call that spirituality, which is even deeper. Mm. And I don't want to even say it's religion because that's more con confined. But um, transformational experiences is what we want in our life. Um, we yearn for that. There's a hole for that. And when you can travel and see things from a new perspective, it's a heart opener. You know, like your dreams are transformational because you're living in a different time frame. It's not unreal, it's real. So when I show you things that are real, that you've never seen before, either by slowing it down, speeding it up, or magnifying it, or zooming out into space, the brain is looking at that and it's going, oh my God, I get it, I connect. I connect because it's a reflection of every cell inside of my body, which has the same rhythms and patterns and chemistry that I'm showing you on a macro or micro scale. You don't understand it maybe intellectually, but you understand it, I think, subconsciously. And, and the common phrase that people say over and over when they see my work, oh my God, mm. the jaw drops. The, the, it's like I, f I finally stopped them in their track from the to-do list, from the, you know, the anxiety and the hurry up, rush, rush, rush of yeah. life, that linear thing. It's like finally they slow down. And I think the O means that I caught their attention. The mind means it connected with something deep inside of their soul. And God is that universal energy we all want to be connected to. Because when you feel that connection, you get the ultimate, which is peace of mind. Yeah. You talked about people seeking for a transformational experience. And oddly, I mean, when I go out to do comedy and people come to see a show that I'm in, that, that they're after that. Yeah. If if you go to a movie, um, that's you you want to be taken away, mm -hmm. uh, to to be entertained, to not think about if I do that load of washing tonight, it'll be dry by tomorrow, and why? Oh, the dryer's broken. I've got to remember. You know, 
you're being taken away from that. Or take fountain instead of sunset. <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah. But now what we're faced with is you go to a movie and people are on their devices texting right. through the movie. Or you go to a concert. It doesn't happen with comedy because people have to turn off their phones. Like, it just shut down. But you go to a concert now and people have got their phones up right. and they're videoing what they're seeing, which is like some kind of meta behaviour. Are they seeing what they're there to see or are they more interested in the experience of telling people, like, are they, of telling people that that's what they did? What do you think about all of that? I think the goal is to become present and to savor and experience the joy and happiness you're feeling at the time. If you're recording it, then you're just sharing it with other people, which is okay, but we are inundated now with everybody like sharing, like, hey, I'm at the pizza joint. Hey, I'm at the theme park. Hey, I'm at the beach. It's like, it's like, it's a third person experience as opposed to having a first person. And if you're not in the present, if you're living in either the past, the future, or somebody else's experience, you're not alive. Quite right. Quite right. I have to ask you, through the course of your, your life, your, your, both your work experience um, and your professional take on all of this, have you ever hit a roadblock? Have you ever been forced to, to dig deep to resolve an issue or solve something all the time okay yeah i mean i get rejected probably 99 percent of the time when i'm pitching a new idea for a film for example and i've been hurt many times when i finally get a film made and it's about to be distributed and then the guy in charge has been fired and then somebody else takes over and there's a new agenda and your baby isn't given a, a fair chance to perform on stage because it doesn't get the marketing or distribution support. And it hurts not because I have an ego that it's my baby, it hurts because typically the films have an environmental message and I'm trying to change the world. And I ask this like existential question like, why is the world blocking me? Right. I'm trying to do good. It's not about profit. And I struggle with that all the time. Have you ever got an answer to that question? Patience. It's not the best answer, but maybe it's just a matter of, of I have to wait for maybe it, the elements to kind of line up in a certain way so that maybe there is a better outcome. It is difficult, but I have never gotten an easy answer on that. You know, um, that notion of a jet flying through the air creating a slipstream where it creates a path for things to follow smoothly. The same mm -hmm. thing happens with a boat in the right. water. Drafting. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes. Have you had a moment, can you, can you think mm. back to a moment where either you created that or someone else created something that you were able to slot into and you went, ah. I think what has happened is when I pick a topic, like with Wings of Life, it was pollination. I wanted to make a film about flowers a long time ago. And then all of a sudden, we have the bees disappearing with colony collapse disorder. That creates a lot of public awareness and, and news stories about the issue. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm able to draft off of it. I think what happens is with artists, 
I think artists have an antenna into the future, and we can anticipate things before history catches up. And, and therefore, you find these fortuitous moments, like I'm working on a film about mushrooms now, and literally like every week, there's a new discovery about you know, um, the microbiology of what's going on in the soil. A couple of weeks ago, I read that they just found fungi in the igneous rock in the crust under the ocean perhaps the largest living habitat of life on the planet. And nobody knows about this stuff. So, um, I mean, you look at German expressionist, uh, German expressionist art, the paintings, they were dark. This preceded what went on in Germany. Artists always, I think, have a window into the future. That's why people like art. That's why artists need to lead culture, need need to lead civilization and people need to pay respect to art and the importance of art because it is an indicator of where we're going. Our government in Australia is making cuts to art left, right and centre and it's almost as if sport gets funded but scientific discovery, our CSIRO, yeah. has been un underfunded and, and unfunded. So science and art are unfunded at the expense of sport, which is seen as the be-all and end-all. Is it a similar kind of thing in America? Yes. I mean, it's true in our education. I mean, it's first thing that gets cut. And yes, yeah, sports, you know, the universities, everything gets all the money. I mean, sport, it's almost like the days of Rome. It's like, you know, it's the gladiators and the lion. It's, mm -hmm. it's the circus. It kind of appeals to the lowest common denominator. I hate to say that. I uh, hope I don't offend a sport enthusiast. But I, I do think there is talent, definitely, in certain you know, sports activities. But um, it seems like it's a, you know, it's a black and white issue of winning and losers. And, um, and the masses, you know, I'll get behind it. When I, I think we should all be doing our individual search for what's the meaning of life. Mm. It's a big question. There is no answer. Wake up every morning with a blank slate. Figure it out. You know? It's, it's a journey. It's not like... It's not black and white. There is no Bible that's going to give you the answer. The answer is it's a mystery. And being on the path of unveiling the mystery can be an adventure. Who are some of the most interesting people that you've ever worked with? Mm. <laughs> It's funny because, in a way, in your, being a pioneer, you sort of <clears throat> work on your own a lot. And I end up mentoring a lot of younger people. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's certainly artists and photographers who I've read about. I'd say in, in college, Edward Weston was a very, very inspirational um, artist, photographer, because not only did he shoot beautiful black and white images of nature, but he, his philosophy was something quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I think I can remember a quote. He said, I am an adventurer on a voyage of discovery, ready to receive fresh impressions, eager for new horizons, not in the spirit of a militant conqueror to impose myself or my ideas but to identify myself in and unify with whatever I'm able to recognize as a significant part of me, the me of universal rhythms.
That's just drop that quote out there, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only quote I can it was remember. Right, absolutely. Um, you're working on the the fungi, the mushroom yeah. movie at the moment. Gosh, I want I want Pixar or Disney to mm. to pick it up, right? Um, but not animated. I will voice a mushroom for you if you ever if you ever need a, um, some kind of mushroom voiced. I'll do that for you. Okay. Um, you seem like a fun gal. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, tish. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> oh my god. Um, what are you do? What else are you doing at the moment? Where where can we see your work? What's the plan? Well, um, movingart.com uh, is my website, and right now I'm kind of working on three different projects. Uh, Fantastic Fungi is all about the mushrooms and fungi, um, fungi and fungals. <laughs> and um, then I've got a series called Gratitude Revealed that talks about all the attributes that go under the umbrella of gratitude, things like forgiveness, compassion, joy, wonder, curiosity. With different, these are short films with different styles, everything from animation to documentary, cinema verite, to montage, spoken word. And the third piece I'm working on, which I'm really excited about as well, I call it visual healing. I want to bring my nature imagery into healthcare, helping people in hospitals, assisted living, um, anyone who's sort of suffering, I suppose, to be able to tap into the quote that Edward Weston just said, mm. that there's a universal energy, the rhythm and pattern that can actually heal you. Now, studies have shown that people in hospitals heal faster when they have like a, a window. Um, if there's a garden, they heal faster. So why not bring virtual nature imagery into spaces that don't have access to even a window or a garden? Um, studies show that it does you know, reduce uh, heart rate, respiration rate, uh, less reliance on painkillers. Um, I mean, think about it. 80% of the information you receive comes through your eyes. Okay. But there is no healing modality. We have massage where you touch. You've got audio tapes that can help people do guided meditations, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. There's aromatherapy for sense of smell. What healing is there for the eyes? I'd never thought of it like that. I mean, I... My first answer would be visualization, but that's not it. You're absolutely right. So movingart.com yes. is where we can see. Yeah. I'm aware that you're a busy man. I have one more question for you. Sure. Has anybody ever made an offhand comment to you that has stayed with you, that's made an impression? Mm. Well, I get a comment a lot that when the people see my imagery, they say it's mesmerizing. And I actually looked up what the word mesmerizing comes from. I think there was a magician named Mesmer, a hypnotist. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was, he was a hypnotist, so he would sort of put people into a zone. And now they found out that zoning out is good for you, that we need to, for creativity and for yeah. creative decision makings, you need to, like, every once in a while, you know, focus when you need to focus, but then let go when you can let go. It's a way to kind of reboot the brain. <coughs> Excuse me, this cough is it's just okay. not wanting to go. <coughs> I'm assuming you can edit those out, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so 
I think that's one thing. And then what I said earlier, when, when, when I came back to Hollywood after living in Northern California, and people said, oh my God, your stuff is beautiful. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it before. But what do you do with it? And you, so you, and you've always relied on yourself yeah. to do something with it because I think a lot of us are relying on someone else to see that uniqueness right. and to run with it. Right, so I created the stock footage industry for motion imagery. In other words, I created my own path. This whole idea about visual healing, there's no distribution platform for that. I'm going to have to create that. So I don't let things block me. I'm like a salmon going upstream. If that rocks in my way, I'll just go to the right or to the left. A lot of times it's more than just creating the art. If you're pioneering something, then you have to create the, the network or the distribution pattern, whatever it takes to break through so you can go either B to B or B to C. You need to be able to create that. That's amazing. That's... Um that's a state that's just blown me out of the water because I think that's it's one of the things that artists are looking for uh, if you're a sculptor a painter an actor we all look for agents and bookers mm -hmm. and representatives get me into that gallery right. get me on that stage get me on that set but more than ever before we're being asked to find our own way and find our own opportunities and you've been doing that all along. And nowadays, even though it's a freemium model, <laughs> freemium. Um, <laughs> it, there is, in a sense, less gatekeepers because, in truth, yes, you can put something out on the internet and you can make people aware of it, as opposed to saying, I got turned down and there's only three networks to go to, right. which is where you know I started it. Yeah. The three networks never showed a documentary film. So I didn't make documentaries for over a decade because it was literally impossible to put a program on television. Yeah, that's amazing. Louis, I wish you all the best and I'll be looking at movingart.com to see what you do next. Okay. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.